innovation and also Seinfeld sometimes when <laughs> when we talk about it anyway. I'm Anthony. I'm a senior director at Lux Research. I'm joined by my co-hosts, Mike and Karthik. Mike, how are you doing? How are things in New York, the home of, of Jerry Seinfeld? Uh, doing well. Haven't seen him recently. Ran in, ran into Jerry at a cafe in the uh, the Upper East Side once. Really? When was this? Yeah, like 2002 or something like that. So like peak peak Seinfeld fame era. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So we're, we're talking about this because I learned that Kartik is, is a big fan. A big. Have you seen the whole series, Kartik? Like, what's talk to me four about times. Four times. Is this like a is this like a streaming era thing when when you got into it like later, or is this like it was always running when you were a kid? Like, what what was the experience with Seinfeld? I, I need to know. So I got into Seinfeld because of my friend's dad, and he was talking about why you know Seinfeld is observational comedy and it's still relevant to our times uh so i thought why not jump in and and then i just got hooked because so many things that they do it's funny and relevant because i see myself doing those funny things in my life so just got hooked to it dang nothing is more funny and relevant to seinfeld than ai of course have you seen the ai seinfeld did you did you hear about this whole thing i haven't actually Oh, okay. So, like, basically, they fed all these episodes of Seinfeld into, like, an AI, and they tried to have it make an AI-produced Seinfeld. Basically, it's, like, these really low-res, like, 3D models of the characters, and they'll come out and, like, talk to each other in, in, like, this AI-generated voice. But it, like, broke down, like, really quickly. Like, it was... uh, It was it it was kind of like mini famous or like there was a sort of viral sensation to it, Um, but they had to like first of all they had to like take it off the air because it just started like saying slurs like over and over and over again like that's kind of what it devolved into, (laughs) which is like too much Michael Richards and the Kramer the Kramer Kramer experience (laughs) on the Seinfeld I think, but then like now they put it back up but it's sort of just broken down and the characters are just like staring at each other and like not saying anything. Uh, I think this is all on Twitch. I think you can go back and watch it. but it is exactly this type of low quality Seinfeld content that Dark Brandon, our president, of the United States, well, my and Mike's president of the United States of America, <laughs> has has put his foot down to decide to protect us against. Because um, the first piece of news we wanted to touch on was the October thirtieth. So we're recording this on on November second, on October thirtieth. We had the executive order on safe, secure, and trustworthy artificial intelligence. Um, which is an executive order. And it's basically a sort of a grab bag of directions to agencies, uh, you know, executive policy standards, um, basically, you know, um, telling agencies, telling the various elements of the executive part of the U S government to get some rules in place around what is good with AI, what's not okay. And there's a bunch of different elements to it. Mike, you're the one who flagged this up. I have my opinions on it, and there's some stuff I want to <laughs> highlight. But I'm curious for your reaction to this uh, before I get into my feelings on it. Yeah, I mean, like you said, it's a bit of a grab bag, and I think most of the stuff that's in here is is sensible as as far as it goes. I, I think some of the things will be controversial within, you know, the tech industry. Re- you know, requiring developers of AI systems to share certain 
safety test results and things with the um, with the government um, and uh, privacy protection. You know, trying to put some guidelines or structures in place to prevent uh, algorithmic discrimination with AI, things like that. I don't think anything that's in here is going to be ultimately all of that um, that consequential. I think uh, you know, but it's it was more interesting to to me because it shows the government is you know we're kind of relatively quickly by as these things go uh, starting to to try to stake out some stands and some positions and start to regulate some of these. Um, you know, these AI type of system. I mean, obviously AI has been, you know, going on and commercially relevant for a while, but I think a lot of this is in response to the, the launch of chat GPT and these gen, you know, that have really catapulted it into, into the public eye much more uh, dramatically. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I do think there's something to be said for how they are moving relatively quickly here. And, you know, that's better than something like crypto where it was, really pretty well after the fact and and you had multiple kind of big crypto booms including like the big crypto boom before the u.s government really clarified its position on any of this stuff and that was ultimately harmful to a lot of u.s investors right harmful to a lot of people who got scammed or just bought cryptocurrency because they thought it was safe or they gave their um they gave their money to one of those institutions that was like, yeah, we are hundred percent backed by the federal government. Don't worry about it. We're just like a bank. And then they're like, disclaimer, no, we're not. <laughs> but <laughs> the, the AI, there, there are some specific things I want to call out in the AI uh, sort of order. The first one is this idea require developers, the most powerful AI systems to share safety results and other critical information with the U S government. This is not an aberration in terms of the U.S. government's relationship with Silicon Valley, right? Like, Silicon Valley has very much been a U.S. and particularly like a defense-funded industry, right? Like, they funded the initial development of- From the very beginning, yeah. From the 50s, right? Like, from the 50s, like, the U.S. government was the main funder of the early silicon technologies. They were the early funder of a lot of the advanced computing technologies through the 80s. Um and, you know, there's this very deep relationship between social networks, right? And all of that stuff, um, you know, all tech companies, you've got not just like the obvious ones, like Palantir, which is like, we're doing evil stuff for the CIA. Like, that's our tagline. But like every, every, like, you know, one of these companies, right? And we found that out with like Edward Snowden and all this stuff. That's not a surprise, right? And it's undeniably the case that this is continuing to happen with AI, right? This is just a very deep, there's just a very deep relationship between Silicon Valley developers, tech developers, and, you know, the Department of Defense. Like, that's just how it works. The exact nature of what that relationship is right now, who knows? Unclear. I mean, someone knows. Not sharing it with us. But like, this idea, like, <laughs> oh, like, you know, there's going to be some, like, moderate, like, protests or whatever from, like, Silicon Valley people where they're like, oh, we really, you know, we, we don't want to, like, work for the government or, like, we need to, like, make sure that we're doing like freedom stuff and like whatever objection they have. But the reality is like the U S government will access and direct the development of these AI technologies because that's like how Silicon Valley works basically. Um, and we will figure out what that means in probably about eight to 10 years, uh, which is maybe not the ideal way of, of doing business, but is definitely the case. 
Yeah, I mean, for me, uh, it was interesting you brought up the uh, the freedom aspect because that's what was running through my mind. I mean, would developers go out and say, oh, you're restricting our ability to code and make these beautiful things that can make, help us achieve beautiful things? Um, but of course, I mean, when I was just going through the fact sheet as well, I was checking, you know, things like protecting people from information shared with content like deepfake and stuff. So I, I think I can see some uh, some positives there. But I don't know how the the developer community would react to this. Uh, AI is not my field, so I really cannot comment on that. But uh... oh, sure. I mean, I think there's always reasonable arguments to be made, and reasonable arguments that the U.S. government does make in order to access these systems. Whether it's ensuring that data is used responsibly, or ensuring that the outputs are used responsibly. But ultimately, like you know, there's already, we already know like the CIA is using ai to like screen a sh- like a ton of data like this is already this has mm-hmm. like been reported um and and that's ultimately what like the u.s government wants it wants to use these tools and it wants to have priority access to the use of these tools all this other stuff about protecting americans is is very much a secondary concern like historically i think that's that's been the case and i don't particularly see a different uh pattern unfolding here um one interesting thing that did jump out was pretty high up in this list of of priorities is protect against the risks of using AI to engineer dangerous biological materials by developing strong new standards for biological synthesis screening. Agencies that fund life science projects will have to establish these standards, blah, blah, blah. Basically, we don't want to make, we don't want to develop tools that make it really easy for anyone to genetically engineer or otherwise develop, you know, a biological weapon or accidentally develop something that's like you know, COVID-2, right? Uh, COVID-20, right? <laughs> um, and that's interesting because I think this is a place where the techniques and the technologies that are used to develop, like, the good microbes are not in any meaningful sense different from the techniques and approaches that you could use to develop, like, the bad microbes. Um, so it's one of those places where I'm not really sure... you're going to have to restrict who uses the technology and how much more so than like, and like who can access the technology much more so than the technology itself. I feel because it's just such a big question, like, or a big thorny issue of like, well, you know, if you can invent any microbe or any biological compound you want, like that capability is just like a very easy to use maliciously and be like very difficult to like, write a program that detects bad microbes you know what i mean like that that could be a lot of different things it could be anything it could be like a microbe that like disrupts food production right like it's like oh this just like kills corn crops or whatever like like that would be hugely disastrous and it's like how do you how do you detect against all the possibilities for malfeasance so it's there's just going to be a lot of restrictions on who can access that technology i feel like which i don't know mike i mean I, i feel like that could slow development of a lot of this type of stuff yeah, I mean, I guess I, I, I feel like this is not that different than the situation with, you know, I mean, over the last 20, 30 years, right, we've developed an increasingly powerful te- set of, uh, you know, various biological techniques and CRISPR and gene editing and all of these, these sort of things, which all could in principle be used to create bad things just as they're being used to, to, to create good things. Um, you know, an AI is kind of just another tool in that kit or, or an accelerant to, to a lot of those, 
those type of tools. But, you know, the tools have been around for a while. We haven't had, unless you believe like uh, some conspiracy theories about COVID-19, uh, anybody, uh, any really major incidences of engineered microbes or, or other uh, organisms being, being unleashed in a really, in a really harmful way. So I think it's, I think it's, but, and also it hasn't, you know, the, the restrictions that are, are in place to, to try to prevent abuses um, of, you know, the existing tools we have. I don't know that that's that, that that's really slowed down biological research that, that dramatically either. So I think it's good. They're putting this, yeah, it's a good idea to put this, this sort of stuff in place. It's, you know, there's no way it's ever going to be a hundred percent effective, but, uh, mm-hmm. but I don't know. It's, it's also may not be, hopefully won't be that, that consequential on, on either side. For me, the, uh, the, sorry, Mike, uh, for me, the implementation part is what I see quite challenging. I mean, how do you define the protocols to say this is right and this is wrong? I mean, we yeah. can, if, during a discussion, we can, you know, say, okay, yeah, this is right and this is wrong, but there will definitely be gray areas that will be difficult to implement in a, from a protocol standpoint or, or in the form of a code for an AI. So I'm not sure how that's really going to happen. Yeah, there's definitely implementation challenge. I think the kind of the more interesting discussion about about all this is, you know, what's not in here, right? One of the other things that we were talking about uh, in Slack this week is uh, this article about how an AI company in Finland is using prisoners to, uh, you know, basically help train their their LLM, which, you know, uh, they have to do. And they're getting paid like a you know a buck fifty an hour to 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 do it this this kind of click work, um, which is kind of interesting. Like they have to do that in Finland because not that many people out like basically nobody outside of Finland speaks Finnish. Um, in the U.S., we don't have that problem. Like lots of people all around the world speak English, so we can you know the U.S. AI companies get armies of people in you know Kenya or the Philippines or other other places where there's. Lots of other places where there's English speakers to do that to, sort of to work. Be clear, that... also, also exploited people like like yeah yeah yeah. People <laughs> in the Philippines and Kenya are being exploited. They're being paid way below minimum wage. Yeah, I mean, arguably even more so than the Finnish prisoners. Uh, yeah, at least the Finnish prisoners are in a Finnish prison. And there's also you know there's all sorts of inputs or questions around you know artists who are concerned about the or or writers who are concerned about ai being you know their their work being used without their permission to train ais and and that could end up displacing that like instead of none of none of those issues around the training of these models and i think a lot of the notable legal and ethical issues uh around that are are addressed at all in here as far as i can see yeah and like the stuff that's in there is pretty weak on like advancing there's like a section advancing equity and civil rights and what is in there is not ideal um for example there's a section on ensuring fairness throughout the criminal justice system by developing best practices on the use of ai in sentencing parole and probation and like i don't know if you know this about prosecutors in the united states but the the thing about them is that they break the rules constantly right like they're, they're, this is extremely well documented. Like they don't follow guidelines. Like we can't get them to turn over like Brady material, like exculpatory evidence in any sort of consistent way. And so like this idea, like, Hey, yeah, like we're going to develop best practices for like these people to use AI. Like, well, dog, 
they're not going to follow the best practices. They already don't follow the law. Like, <laughs> what makes you think they're going to follow the best practices? And it's like a very similar, there's another section where it's like, provide clear guidance to landlords, federal benefits programs, and federal contractors to keep AI algorithms from being used to exacerbate discrimination. It's like, okay, like, landlords? Are you kidding me? Like, <laughs> <laughs> landlords again notorious for consistently breaking the law like constantly breaking the law in regards to tenants rights in regards to discrimination in regards to you know any of these other factors and like they can do that because there aren't real meaningful consequences or the consequences have to be brought by people who like are discriminated against you know but it's hard to sue people when you're homeless um that's that's challenging right and so this idea, like, okay, we're gonna develop, we're gonna like develop guidelines for landlords. It's like, okay, they're they're just not gonna follow the guidelines. Like, this is this is already <laughs> a failed. This is just a failed approach from the start to to the idea of 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 how this can can protect equity or how this can protect civil rights. This is the baseline approach doesn't work here. And so like, you saying, oh well, like, in response to AI, we need to like develop these rules for AI. It's like, well, no, like. <laughs> <laughs> that's just that's just missing the point entirely, right? Well, the thing that that is going to potentially give, I mean, it's not going to like help the land, you know, make landlords follow guidelines or whatever. But um, the thing that does that, the last section in this, which in some ways is the most, probably the most significant, is about. Well, it's titled "Ensuring and Responsible and Effective Government Use of AI," but um, you know, kind of back to the point Anthony made at the beginning, right? Government is going to be a huge customer for a lot of these, these AI companies and that federal contracting process, the desire to win these big deals with, you know, Department of Defense, as you mentioned, but you know, any department, like this is going to be not just in defense, it's going to be a lot of big government contracts for, you know, AI and other types of systems used in, in all sorts of ways um, across all sorts of agencies. And that that is, you know, as as it's been with government IT contracts in the past, definitely something that will give the government some leverage over over companies developing these systems, because especially, you know, the Googles and Microsofts and Amazons of the world are definitely going to want to get big federal contracts. Um, and so that will give those type of organizations, um, you know, reason to, to follow some of the guidelines and, and, and requirements within here. The thing that's going to happen and the thing that AI is going to do in this context is it's just going to give cover for people to do the stuff they already wanted to do, right? So, hey, we want to do, we want to achieve some outcome and we don't want to have to justify or the justifications for that are, are politically difficult or whatever. There's a problem with justifying what we want to do. What we're going to do is we're going to develop an AI tool that gives us the outcome we want. And then we're going to say we're doing it because the AI said it was right, you know? Like, if we want to be tough on crime, for example, but we don't want to, you know, that's politically unpopular because, like, everyone knows the war on drugs has failed or whatever. All we have to do is say, we're going to use an AI to do fair sentencing. And it just so happens that the AI gives 10-year sentences for drug crimes instead of, like, five-year sentences. You know, that's all That's all this is going to be used for in, in, a, I think, a pretty meaningful way, especially when it comes to government. But also when it comes to corporations as well, right? Like we want to spend as little money as possible on hiring. There's this established pool of really good candidates. We could hire diverse candidates, but it's a ton more work. We don't want to do that. Like we just are going to have the AI do it. And then, you know, that's just going to get us the candidates we want. And 
you know, we can just say, hey, the AI told us to do this, right? And and that's there's no real sort of recognition of that. Like a lot of this is sort of assumes AI works or assumes people are are just going to use AI in good faith, and like assumes they're going to follow the rules. And it's like, oh, these are not good assumptions, right? And like, there's there's better and worse. Like this isn't the worst set of AI like proposals or regulations we've seen. I mean, there was this like Carnegie Institute thing where it was like. <laughs> It was just like completely missing the point of of AI and, and all this stuff. And like, they're like, we're going to have a diverse board to like make sure that AI decisions are made responsibly. And you look at the board, the board and the first member is like the president of Rand Corp or whatever. It's like, okay, like stop. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's just like, it's just frustrating and challenging because you can see where like a lot of the stuff is going, like walking kind of down the path that like social media walked down with like relation to the government and all this stuff. And it's like, yeah, we're just going to do that again with uh, presumably the same negative consequences or worse. Just frustrating to see. Yeah. I mean, but that's with AI, with any, any of these technologies, they're all going to reflect the, the pathologies or the virtues of, of the society that, that decides to create and, and deploy them. It's, it's not going to, you know, AI is not going to solve discrimination, regardless of uh, what type of uh, guidelines the the government uh, puts out. You know, it's it's going to reflect the features of society as as it exists uh, for the right. most part, rather than changing them. Yeah, and I think that's not something you'll probably hear from people developing AI who seem to think that AI will change society, but it's very much the case. Um. Okay, I think we're ready to move on from AI. I think I've said everything I want to say. Like you flagged up this uh, Toyota uh, solid state article in the FT. I mean, Toyota has been saying they're going to do solid state for a long time. They haven't done any solid state battery stuff yet, per se, or have not commercialized this. Every now and then we get these articles, which is like, oh, man, this 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 solid state stuff is really crazy. Like, check this shit out. Toyota could be like <laughs> totally killing it in the future. What is something different about this article? Is this another one of these articles? What, what's going on? Yeah, it's kind of just another one of these these articles. Uh, <laughs> right. It's it's uh, it seems to be a part of the PR strategy for for Toyota that like, uh, you know, and I'm sure, you know, the, there are people there that are working on it and doing very good research. And I'm sure they're making progress. But, it, you know, when they're getting a hard, a hard time when they are being given a hard time about, you know, the fact that they're running behind other automakers and in terms of rolling out electric vehicles they're like oh wait but you know there's been a breakthrough on this solid state stuff and it never really doesn't really say what the breakthrough is it doesn't you know and it hasn't translated and you know and this announcement is not like oh like and we're we're breaking ground on a you know gigafactory or we're we're opening a gigafactory like next week it's like oh no we had a breakthrough in the manufacturing process and it'll be cool as always i would appreciate a little less credulous reporting on this it's like but the ft article is better this ft article is, is okay on that front like there is a quote it's better than some there is a quote in here where they're like uh solid state technology is not without its skeptics it's like and then like they have some guy who's like uh the existing set of solutions is just completely fine like like we don't need this at all and then like they just sort of move back to like um <laughs> just move back to like oh wow they say like these breakthroughs are happening and like sort of just 
totally gloss over that. Um, I mean, with with Toyota specifically, aren't they also looking at hydrogen fuel cell vehicles and the Mirai? Yeah, they're still committed. They're still committed to fuel cells. I mean, like, this is a company who has really missed the boat, right? Like, this is the company that mm-hmm. had the first and most successful electric vehicle, essentially, of all time, which is the Prius, right? Hybrid electric vehicle, yeah. but fundamentally an electric vehicle. And built on that success by doing absolutely nothing, right? And 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 worse than doing nothing, like completely squandering any effort by screwing around with hydrogen fuel cells and not releasing full electric vehicles. Like, yeah, I mean, they even were kind of slow on the PHEVs, right? Because that's Toyota's argument, and they could, you know, there's a, it's like, okay, we should really be doing PHEVs now because for most people, that does mean they do all electric, and you don't need as big a battery. It preserves some of these resource issues, and you know, I kind of get that, but they also didn't really execute on even on on that part of it that well in the article they do state that uh one of their partnerships is for a sulfide-based electrolyte which can achieve commercialization within the next five years um of course in the article they're talking about commercialization by 2027 um i don't follow the solid state battery space much so i really don't know if that's the uh you know the actual commercialization timeline or like you said if it's a it's just a pr stunt to get their stock prices up um, I really don't know. Now that said, a couple of days after this article came out, they did announce like an actual fourteen billion dollar investment in a real battery factory in in North Carolina. Uh, not not, not a, a solid state battery factory, but you know, it's with incumbent, you know, lithium ion technology. Um, you know, so they they are getting into to gear on this, and you know, the, the new leadership and new regime there does seem to be really committing to making this transition, but it's just they're they are behind the game relative to to a lot of these other manufacturers, which have, you know, pretty pretty extensive, you know, EV lineups right now. And their track record is quite questionable, which really doesn't help. Yeah. We published a big report on solid state recently, our our updated roadmap. And if you look at it, like Toyota's not really even a player in that that roadmap right now. And that's just because there's just not a lot of evidence that the stuff they're working on is that valuable. Well, or I guess I should say that they're not credibly ahead of any of like the startups or any of the like small players who are you know making these same very similar sort of claims about timeline and scale up and everything else, right? And in a lot of ways, they're they're behind some of the most credible startups who are already putting solid state batteries into like very small applications, as far as I understand. So it's just not something that, you know, should be taken that seriously, I guess. I mean, maybe we'll be wrong and they'll, they'll build a gigafactory, but I feel like it's one of those things where there's just still enough time. Like, like if you're worried about this disrupting your business, it's like you will you will know before this disrupts your business. Like you will have ample evidence and time to respond. Speaking of the winds of change which is just not what we were speaking of at all. It's a terrible <laughs> transition. Uh, Karthik, you had flagged up um, more wind-powered large-scale marine shipping. That's what the world needs. Yeah. Uh, so Airbus, uh, they're going to be working with uh, Edward Louis Dreyfus to develop these Flettner rotors. Uh, they're just large vertical cylinders that will rotate when the wind blows. Um and they're going to use these rotors to power their ships. 
to transport their aircraft components across the United States and Europe. Um, so this is not the, it's not a standalone solution. Um, so what they're planning to do is they want to use this alongside a dual engine system that, um, so one of the engine runs on maritime diesel, the other one runs on e-methanol. Um, and they're going to use this rotor as and when they can to assist the other two systems in decarbonizing shipping. Um, and I think their roadmap also is 2028 or 2027, something along those lines. Uh, sorry, so they will um, enter service uh, 2026, so about three years out. So how much of this is is the e-methanol part versus the the wind turbine part? Because it seems to me like that's also a pretty big element of how they're going to decarbonize their their shipping vessels. But I'm curious for your take the wind on this. turbines are definitely the bigger part of the making it look cool. So it looks pretty wild. Well, yes, that's, that's, <laughs> that's correct. <laughs> <laughs> but decarbonization, yeah. I mean, yeah, of course. I mean, for me, the the interesting aspect with any vertical system, and I mean, I'm sure Airbus knows their aerodynamics more than I do. I mean, they are aircraft manufacturers. But uh, uh, I, personally speaking, I don't know how a vertical cylindrical rotor is going to be efficient with wind and how that's going to generate the lift to propel. I genuinely do not. Um, or maybe they've just uh, provided a very basic explanation of how it works on the press release and there is something more intricate to it. But I wouldn't expect this to be as efficient, which means at the end of the day, your e-methanol uh, fuel cell is what is going to be you know, doing the heavy lifting in terms of decarbonizing that ship. There's one important detail about this announcement that we have to we have to highlight before... We, we close the podcast, and that is the provenance of this this particular invention, right? Karthik, I'll, I'll let you take this one, but there's an important connection here, right? I mean, it, uh, it's uh, what I would say is closing the loop with Seinfeld, uh, so <laughs> because uh, it's Edouard Louis Dreyfus who is uh, uh, closely linked to Julia Louis Dreyfus from Seinfeld, who will be designing these flattener rotors. Mm-hmm. So uh, I mean, it's it's maybe not as impressive as running like the Jay Peterman calendar, right? That's the that's the calendar. Uh, yeah. For the, the 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 publishing business that she was part publishing of. Publishing business, right? Yeah. But yes. uh, her, this is Julia Lewis Dreyfus' actual grandfather, right? Or great grandfather who who founded. Great grandfather founded the company. Yes. Wow. So it uh, it, <laughs> it all it all comes full circle. It all gets wrapped up in. So one of the most interesting and, and possibly sort of uh, controversial in the, in the consumer-facing area is this idea of textile sustainability and apparel sustainability. I think this is something that in the last few years has really emerged as something that consumers are beginning to be a lot more aware about. They're beginning to demand a lot more in the way of solutions. Um, but they're also in various ways uh, trying to hold companies accountable for the textile waste and the, the sort of sustainability impacts of textiles. And so over the last few years, it's something that we at Lux have been covering a lot more frequently. Um, but it's tough. Textiles and apparel, as we're going to learn, are, are a really, really challenging area. Well, perhaps one of the most challenging areas or objects to try and recycle. Um, but to discuss all this with us, we've got Trisha Carey, the Chief Commercial Officer of RenewCell, which is a textile recycling company, I believe based in Sweden, um, and she's with us on the podcast today. Trisha, how are you doing? 
Doing well. Thanks, Anthony, for having me today. We are super delighted to have you on the podcast. Can you start by talking about textile and apparel recycling for our audience who may not be completely familiar with the technology, how it works, and um, what is different or, or what Renew Cell in particular is really trying to bring to textile and apparel recycling? Sure, sure, Anthony. When you think about it, I think we all have these experiences where we're cleaning out our closet, we put it in a bag, and we send it away, wherever away is, not really knowing where it's going to. Well, over the years, those textiles have been piling up in landfills, and our rate of consumption continues to increase as consumers, especially here in the United States. And when we look at that, this mounting pile of textile waste needs a solution. And as we see within the apparel industry and the textile industry, the need for circularity, as well as what's happening in other industries, right? And we look at circular cities and how we can reduce our waste, not only reducing our waste, but where we can also lower our carbon footprint in conjunction with that. Um, so textiles now are being recycled at a rate of less than 1%. Some textiles get recycled and they've been downcycled into rags, maybe filler for dog beds or insulation, but they have not been used uh, to upcycle in, in a large way. So in comes RenewCell. Um, 10 years ago, the company was founded and uh, in 2020 became a publicly listed company on the NASDAQ in Sweden. And uh, since then, we've been building from our lab scale to pilot to now we have the first industrial scale textile recycling facility where we take cotton waste. We take the, the uh, cotton rich textile waste and we take that cotton cellulose and we're able to take that molecule and put it into a dissolving pulp, which is then used to make new fibers. So as we look at the transformation that the textile industry is going through, we need to have collectors, sorters, pre-processors, and recyclers like ourselves in order to close the loop and make textile recycling happen within a closed loop. So you said something interesting there, which is that textiles are recycled at about a 1% rate. And that's obviously a lot lower than something like metal. You know, aluminum and steel are both in the 70 to 75% rate. And even for general plastics, I think the overall plastic recycling rate is something like 7%. And something like uh, plastic bottles is maybe like 25%. What is it about textiles that is driving, you know, that recycling rate down to such a low, low level, even way lower than you know, some of the things we we have big problems with already. What's causing that? Yeah. Well, I think what's happened over the years is that it was easier just to keep producing, right? And um, the fashion industry, And when I first came into the industry in the mid-1990s, um, and I was buying fabric at that time, I was buying fabrics that were $10 a yard for a middle market brand. Now you see that price has gone down to $250, $3 a yard for fabrics. So you see this, this huge consumption, and, and we all know it. We're buying more and more clothes. Um, and, and so over time, it was, there wasn't really a need for it. It was cheaper to just keep producing virgin than to try to figure out solutions to this problem. And that's where now this, we could call it the decade of innovation, where we're looking at solutions to circularity and where we can start to recycle. I mean, there's always been mechanical recycling that's been done through the years. 
And mechanical recycling is more like if you think of a food processor where you put the textiles in and it shreds it up. But then you have shorter staple fibers, which impact the strength. So how do we get back to this point where we have long lasting garments, those that have quality and there's value in the garments? And this is something that, you know, we've switched into this mode of fast fashion and, you know, you need, you have a garment, wear it once. It's, um, you know, for some younger people, it's their Instagram shot and then they move on or um, Very those, <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. So we, we see that, you know, over, over the years, this shift in the mentality of how everyone uh, looks at consuming more rather than establishing value. And if you look more, and I think it's a mindset change that we need to have as consumers, look at the value of the cost per use, you know, that that's really where it comes in instead of just buying something, wearing it once and throwing it away. So, you know, uh, there's over a hundred billion garments that are produced every year and 92 million tons ends up in landfills. I mean, it's staggering the, the number of what... And you think about it, I don't know if you've ever done this, when you go in, when you're shopping in the mall and you say to yourself, where does all this go? Where do all these clothes really end up? You know, the racks are filled and you go, at, you know, Christmas time, holiday time, and you, you, you see stacks and stacks of, of piled high of uh, knit tops and sweaters. And you're like, where, who's wearing all of this? You know, there's, a, there's, there's about 20 to 30% of clothes that aren't even sold. Where do they go? Um, and this is the problem that the industry is facing. We've been operating on this model of make more, make more, and we need to look at how we can actually bring circularity in, in a way that still can bring a value to the clothing. So one of the real challenges, I think, with, uh, with this space, right, is, is just the collection and the, the sorting of waste, right? You can't, you've got a pair of ripped blue jeans, you can't just drop them in your, your curbside recycling container, right? So for, for Renew Cell, where do you, where is the waste that you're using coming from? Is it a lot of post-industrial? Is it a lot of, um, you know, as you were saying, sort of like uh, overstock garments that were just never sold in stores? Or do you really get a lot of post-consumer stuff as well? Yeah. No, Mike, you're right. I mean, the collection and sorting, and this is a whole new, um, a new system that needs to be started. And you can't just take a linear model and just turn it into a circle. It doesn't work that way. You have new players that are now involved. And so at Renew Cell, uh, our facility is in Sweden. It's about three and a half hours north of Stockholm. Um, it is uh, on a former site that uh, in the facility, the overall site is still a paper mill. Um, but the area that we have uh, was no longer being used. So we were able to recycle the building, recycle a lot of the equipment, and even bring back some workers. So it's excellent that we're able to give new jobs to workers who have the expertise in manufacturing pulp. Our site in Sweden is run on 100% renewable energy, and we are actually building it up to 60,000 tons in, the, in our first ramp up, and then we'll get to 120,000 tons, which is still small in, in the scheme of, uh, of total fibers that are produced every year. So where we are getting our textile feedstock, um, we're getting a lot of it from Turkey, some from Bangladesh, We really are sourcing globally. We've been using a lot of post-industrial textile waste. So we look at specifications that are 95% cotton right now. 
Um, so we can manage some synthetics. Denim's not an issue. We can handle indigo. We can remove uh, the indigo dye as a part of our production process. Um, and we've been starting to feed in some post-consumer waste as well. So we're, ultimately, we know that we need to provide a solution for post-consumer waste. And uh, Europe is much further ahead than the United States when it comes to legislation related to EPR, Extended Producer Responsibility. It's a part of the European Green Deal. And this has been uh, under review really for the past two years. And we're starting to see that in 2025, some of the regulation will start to come into play. Um, EPR in the United States is not, um, not really coming on as strong. We do have some states, so I would say between New York with the New York Fashion Act and then California with SB 707. But um, I think many people are aware that in November of last year, in 2022, that Massachusetts passed regulation that you could not throw away textiles in your regular uh, garbage, that you have to take it to a special, um, you have to take it to the, to the right disposal place. And I think this is great. But we have to be sure that any regulation that comes in, it needs to be monitored and enforced. And I see this as a, a next step. It's not good enough to just have that regulation, but you have to really enforce it. And you have to be able to provide the right systems for consumers to be able to recycle properly. And I think we all know and we're quite familiar and have grown up now with recycling of plastic and paper and, and metal um, and, and we'll have to get into that same, uh, same process for textiles. I can tell you that as a Massachusetts resident, uh, I, I don't think those new laws are being fully <laughs> adopted or enforced just yet. Did you know about it though? Is it, was it even? I did know about it. Okay. I did know about it, but I am probably, uh, a, a more than average educated consumer on this type of issue. So it's, <laughs> it's at least partially my job to know about it. Hey, Tricia, I uh, wanted to ask you, you brought this up, uh, you know, earlier during this conversation uh, about fast fashion. Now, I'm not a big fan of fast fashion myself. Personally, I like, you know, having my clothes last long enough. Um, and you also, you know, mentioned about uh, Inditex and, and, the, and the recent announcement Renewcell had with Inditex. And Inditex is well known for its fast fashion brands like Zara, uh, which is part of the Inditex group. Um, so what are you seeing from the textile industry in terms of these companies finding the right balance? Are they thinking about, let's say in the long run, you know, we're going to still produce fast fashion goods because that's what the consumer wants. Uh, and then we'll recycle it and keep producing more fast fashion goods. Or is the industry shifting towards long lasting goods um, and moving away from that fast fashion trend? What are you seeing? Yeah. I think for companies now that they're setting strategies, so they're setting the right goals, um, you know, it does become that you have to reset the consumer. You have to reset then how you're manufacturing as well. Um, and I do see that there's many of the larger brands that are setting goals and coming up with a roadmap. The challenge that I see in the industry is when goals are just put out there, but there's no plan on how they're going to achieve them. Um, in the case of Inditex, yes, last week they announced that they would uh, take, um, they would purchase the first 2,000 tons of fiber using viscose made with circulose. They saw this as their commitment. They also have commitments to many other innovators within the space for recycling polyester and, and 
um, and also recycling of cotton and polyester textiles together. So I see Inditex as really leading in this uh, and the fact that they're not just making these commitments, they're also investing in a lot of companies. Um, they're, they're not an investor in RenewCell, but we were very uh, pleased with their recent announcement. And this is a signal for the industry on that others need to take this course as well. On this fast fashion topic, I think one of the accusations that often gets leveled is these types of things are only greenwashing or that, you know, they're going to buy 2000 tons here, 5000 tons there, but they produce, you know, millions of tons of material. And this is certainly not exclusive to the fashion industry. You see this, you know, every company from ExxonMobil, AB InVev, you know, they've all had this sort of, oh, you can, you can do this small scale stuff, but it doesn't really matter. And I'm just curious in your mind, if there's a tipping point there, where do things make that transition from being really meaningfully impactful or where, where does that come here and, and how should we evaluate, you know, other brands or other groups in this space and evaluate their commitment? You talk about some people have these goals, but no plan. That's one element clearly, but, um, yeah, I'm, I'm just curious as to when you see these other announcements or other activities in the space happening, you know, what makes you really stop and think, okay, this is something serious or real versus maybe something that's just a bit more for the press? Yeah. Well, I think over the years, because I've been involved in textile circularity for quite some time, I've also started to switch to put myself in the shoes of the buyer. You know, so if you are a brand or retailer, what what are what's your concerns? You know, what is stopping you from making any of these changes? A lot of it is around the scalability. You want to have access to materials. This is a very big challenge for any of these large companies. Of course, they're based on, you know, they need to increase their sales, their revenue, but they also have to be profitable within doing that. So the accessibility to materials is key for many of these for many brands in order to make that switch. So not just setting that goal, but they want to know that if they're going to start working with a material that's circular or, you know, that one that has a lower environmental impact, that it's not just a niche player. And that's very big within the strategy that we have at RenewCell, where we're all about scaling. I would say the second is around quality. And so quality is key for these retailers and brands. You know, they don't, they know they have to still have that quality garment. They can't have a compromise. Uh, in, you know, we worked with Levi's on the 501. Um, they need to make sure that it's still meeting their specifications for the 501. No one wants to have their denim that's falling apart. And certainly the Levi's has very high standards on that. And, and third, it would be around value. So value relating to cost, price, but not, but also looking at the value overall, the environmental impact and that value that a new material can bring. Um, the complexities around switching to a circular model are so tremendous, you know, because it's it's just not an easy task just to kind of now change. And as I was saying in the beginning, you know, where you have new players now, collectors, sorters, pre-processors, recyclers that are all apart. That before, you know, it was much easier to take virgin materials and just keep pumping them in. Um, so this is a fundamental shift that our industry is going through. And uh, it's really quite exciting because I, I feel like now at this point in my career, um, there's a lot that I can I can participate and support in making this change. And being at Renew Cell, that's our purpose. We want to bring that change about. 
So it's a good segue. You kind of mentioned, you know, that you've been in this industry for a long time. And I'm curious as to how maybe the industry perspective on issues of sustainability or circularity has evolved. And in particular, it is, as you mentioned, a lot more complex in addition to being more expensive. And I think there's this, often we see this as focus on cost. It's like, oh, well, this is 20% more expensive. and so if we put in like a 20% tax or an EPR or whatever, we can like get adoption. It's like, well, actually it's 20% more expensive, but also it requires a lot of skills that people don't have. And that's not a, necessarily a money issue. You know, the money is a problem, but it's not the only problem. So I'm, I'm just curious as to how, you know, that, that perception within the industry has really changed or, or how those conversations have changed. And if this is something that, and how you, I guess, in your own journey came to renew cell and say, hey, this is the, the next chapter of my career that I want to really engage with. Yeah. So I've been involved in textiles my whole career. So I started in the mid 1990s. So I'm approaching almost 30 years of being in the industry and, and there was no concern in the beginning in the nineties, there was no, no concern at all really about the environment. Um, I would say it it didn't really pick up until around 2015 or so, um, and now it's accelerated so much during the pandemic. I think, you know, there was another level of awareness that came out of sourcing and the challenges for sourcing that happened during the pandemic and realizing, I mean, when I first started, there was still a very strong domestic industry here in the United States. In fact, that was my first job was at a domestic textile company. Um, and, and the shifts that happened then around 2000, when China opened up and everyone started moving to China, and then it was always chasing the lowest cost producing country. Uh, then there came the realization of what are we doing to the environment? And, and you started to have, I remember when Patagonia came out with these footprint chronicles and they would actually track a garment back and, and take you through the journey that it took just to make that one garment. And how it might be fiber that was coming from U.S. cotton and it could be then spun in Indonesia and then produced in China and then finished somewhere else and then coming back to the United States. And I think that started to give consumers an understanding of just the complexity of the the long value chains that existed. Then I see that the, the next part came on, especially after Rana Plaza, around the social side of the apparel industry. And now we're finally at this convergence of planet people coming together and looking at how the difference can be made. And so last week I was at the annual textile exchange conference. Textile exchange is an NGO that supports uh, responsible textile development, looking a lot across standards. Um, and there were 1400 people at this conference. Now, when I used to attend this conference 10 years ago, we were lucky that we had 400 people in a room. Um, I remember there was one conference in New York that we couldn't even get enough people to attend. It wasn't paying off. Um, And that was only 10 years ago. So the change that's happening in the industry, but I think a part of it is the challenge that apparel, it's still an art. You know, manufacturing is still an art and a craft. And that's what we need to bring back more into the industry So it's just become to mass uh, in the way everything's being done. And we have to bring back the art and craft around what's being produced and using that, you know, apparel is an expression of ourselves. 
So in, in my professional journey, um, being in textiles, uh, and uh, I've worked a lot in the man-made cellulosic fiber space, which is viscose, Modell, Lyocell, um, and I've worked at Lensing for almost 25 years, who are the producer of Tencel, Lyocell. Uh, and there I started to get more involved in understanding around the circularity of textiles. And I always looked at what RenewCell was doing from a distance and thought, you know, it was really an interesting way. Uh, I saw their success in bringing the technology uh, within the pilot lines. And then um, when I uh, received, you know, and uh, some had some discussions around that they needed a commercial officer to lead um, their industrial, their, the industrial line, then I thought, well, this is really a match for the challenge that I'm looking for in my next move, as well as the, the fact that I could make a difference and really participate in the change in this transformation that the industry needs. So I've been involved in textile circularity. Uh, it was around 2015 when I started working on some projects at Lensing and then um, continued with that further. Um, and so my experience in working with global brands as well as value chains in order to bring new, new materials to market uh, is really where I'm building off of a lot of that experience as now we are looking at bringing Circulose, which is our brand name for the dissolving pulp that we make at RenewCell and bringing Circulose to market and working with our fiber producer customers. So one of the other things that, that Anthony mentioned uh, also, and you kind of alluded to in there as well is, is the different skill sets, right? You're bringing a whole bunch of different types of players in here. The industry has to worry more about, you know, social responsibility as well as sustainability and environmental uh, impact. Um, yeah, dealing with, uh, with, with different types of partners, impacts of regulations are probably becoming more, more significant in terms of EPR schemes and, and all that. So, you know, either for you directly at RenewCell, just how you see that affecting the industry is that, you know, kind of bringing different types of people in? Is it needing to, you know, think about different different types of skill sets or ways of training the people who, who have that long industry experience? How is that uh, sort of shaping the, the, the workforce and the, and the organizations within the industry? Yeah, I think within circularity, we see that new people are entering. Um, you have, and, and as I look at other innovators within the space, because there's a lot of collaboration that happens within the innovators. Um, and innovators, I mean, those who are bringing new materials and those who are looking at uh, bringing circularity or, or lower impact materials to market. And you see now chemists, um, you, you see people who were coming from other industries that still understand the environmental impact. I see though what's necessary and what we've been building the commercial team at Renew Cell around um, is really those who have strong relationships in the market. Because more than anything, it's not companies who do business together, it's people who do business together. Um, and that's what's key in gaining the trust and the understanding around launching a new product like Circulose, is that you need to have that, that background and know. It's interesting, in the textile and fashion industry, there's no Wikipedia, there's no one website to go to that says, how do you make a t-shirt? It doesn't exist. It still is very much that art and craft that I was talking about that you kind of have to hunt around. Um, and so you, you have to have those regional relationships that exist, knowing the key suppliers, knowing those. And, and when it comes down to it, it's really 
we're doing a lot of matchmaking, matchmaking of people who would work well together. It's not just about a, a company offering. I wanted to also ask you, Trisha, about the uh, early adopters of uh, Circulos um, from a consumer aspect. I mean, uh, uh, obviously, when people look at these labels, the first thing that comes to their mind is, oh, this is a premium product. It's too expensive. Um, I don't think it's worth paying that much. Um, and I've heard a lot of people say that to me for not just textiles, but for even, you know, organic foods that you find stocked up in the supermarket, for example, because it's 50 cents more expensive, um, especially in price sensitive markets like Asia. What do you see as a trend in terms of early adoption uh, and, and maybe which uh, I'm, I'm guessing Europe and, and, and the West is farther ahead in terms of early adoption of these technologies from a consumer aspect? Yeah. So for Circulos, we had a range of brands that worked with us from our pilot line. Um, so H&M being one, and H&M is our, our largest shareholder as well. I should mention that. Um, and being based in Sweden, there's a lot of connections there. So H&M, uh, Zara had done uh, a capsule collection. Levi's introduced Circulos in the 501 in 2022. So that's been uh, almost two years now. Uh, we also had PBH with Tommy Hilfiger and Calvin Klein. And then we also had some more sustainable oriented brands like Ghani, Pangaea, Philippa K, Triarchy. So we, through, through our introduction from the pilot line, these were some of the early adopters of Circulos. But I think globally, when we look at early adopters, um, it's those who really have the ability to develop those materials um, and, you know, I, I see the trend where it first was starting within the sustainable innovation department, where you might have that capsule collection, but now moving into mainline products. So, and that's how we're going to make the impact. We need to be in regular programs. We need to be accessible across all price points. Um, and what we've been working on at RenewCell for the past four months is building out what we call our supplier network. So it's our circular supplier network where we are working with yarn spinners, knitters, weavers, and denim producers to kind of fill up uh, the whole network. I'm trying to look at this from a circle rather than so say supply chain, because we can't look at it as the supply chain anymore. So that materials are readily accessible to designers. A designer doesn't look at a piece of pulp and say, that's really exciting to me. They need to see it in fabrics and in garments. Um, so part of my most recent trip was to be at a denim trade show uh, in Amsterdam, which is the leading denim trade show called Kingpins. And here we have more than 20 denim producers who have products, uh, denim that's made with circulose. And about 10 of them had concept stories behind it where they build out, okay, this is a theme. This is a way that it, it could look at retail um, and so that's what we're doing to bring this to market and to get those early adopters on board. But they need to see it to understand how it works. Looking a bit more sort of into the future, you know, you've pointed out that textiles have gotten a lot cheaper, right? Um, and that these companies have these pretty strong incentives they need to, to grow. And both those things particularly are, are tough in the context of, you know, fast fashion and needing to move away from you know, this idea of disposable clothing and just generally overselling, you know, clothing uh, at, at a high level. So I, I guess I'm just curious as to like how you see us getting to a point where we are beginning to just sell clothes in a more responsible way 
is there going to be regulation? Is there going to be a consumer change? Is there going to be a change somehow in the organization of the companies? You know, how do, how do we get from where we are now, which is kind of all the way at one end of the spectrum, it feels like, to something that's that's closer to the other end of the spectrum? Yeah. It's almost like, how did we even get to this spot to begin with, right? Um, it, and now and you're right, we have to swing back the other way. I think when we look at what technology can do, uh, where we look at platforms now for resale and rental that didn't exist before that make it very easy. I mean, it used to be if you wanted to buy used clothing, it was Salvation Army or a garage sale, right? Now you you have, uh, you know, the real real and, and amazing platforms that make it very easy for you to buy secondhand uh, rental that, that exists. But also, you know, where can technology help us to and and retailers and brands to not be producing, overproducing by 30%. Where can we produce more on demand? Where can we have better analytics to be able to produce what is actually needed by consumers, whether that's sourcing closer to home? You know, we've gotten so much in a society of I order it on Amazon, it's in my doorstep within hours or the next day, the latest, right? We, we almost have to get a bit out of that mentality. Um, but I think it's going to take a huge consumer shift. I see younger people now, the Gen Z, which I have two at home um, or, or close to home, um, that, you know, again, are questioning their purchases and are learning more about the brands that they're buying from. You know, I can't expect consumers to know what I know around circularity. There's, there's no way. I spend all day long talking about this. So how do we make it so simple for consumers to understand and kind of give them, you know, these, these choices? Is, is it a number? Is it almost like the ingredient label that you have on uh, buying food um, that you know, uh, you know, whether it's, it's all of the ingredients? Um, and that's, I think, the, the same way we're going to have to approach things within the apparel industry, too, is we have to make it very clear without the greenwashing that happens way too often on kind of a red, yellow, green light on on what's good to produce. But if the products that are highly impactful on the environment are never produced to begin with, then the consumer doesn't even need to have that choice. And I have this discussion a lot with within um, working with various brands. They're like, well, if we can just produce the best product that's available, then then the consumer is already off to a better start. You know, but the consumer trusts whether it's a Patagonia or those brands that are just their ethos is all about lower environmental impact and high social standards. So um, but it's going to have to be a whole uh, cultural shift. One that I think we're on our way towards. I do think challenges that existed during the pandemic um, and using social media is one way of, of making that change. Well, I, I darned my socks for the first time over the weekend. So Good for you, Anthony. Doing... <laughs> who, taught, who taught you how to sew? Was it your mom or did you learn it in school? My mom, my mom was a big sewer when I was a kid, but she didn't really teach me how to sew. I'm, I'm mostly self-taught. Um, <laughs> but I mean, I do think there is, like, to your point about the culture, like, there is a growing movement of, of just like, there's a lot of trendy Instagram accounts now that are about, like, hey, like, here's how to darn your socks, which is, in, in a way, where we are, are at with clothes and 
our relationship to clothes is kind of like a really huge aberration from almost you know three four thousand years of like human history right like clothes repair keeping clothes in service for as long as possible has been the mode really up to the 50s maybe the 60s um you know maybe the 30s if you want to make that argument but i mean it's it's really a very like the last 70 years of human history 100 years of human history have we seen this change so we're still sort of grappling it with it in a pretty pretty meaningful way yeah well yeah no it's much easier for some people just to throw it away in that away no one knows where it goes i was really impressed i was shopping in europe and uh at the checkout counter uh there was a whole mending uh display so whether it was a pre-threaded needle or if it was um you know iron-on tape in case your hem had come undone and i'm like well that's this is exactly the direction that we need to go in uh and that a store was smart enough to figure out well we could put this together at the checkout and have it as an another way to service I don't think they're losing sales over doing that. I think it's actually a really wise move. Yeah, I think that it strikes an important point, which is you kind of have to make it easy for people. Like if, if something is going to be widespread, it has to be, there has to be infrastructure to support it and it has to be easy for people to do. Um, so that's that's really great to see. I haven't seen that in the US here. I think we're still a little bit more yeah. in our in our fixed in our ways when it comes to throwing out clothes. Well, Trisha, I just wanted to thank you so much for jumping on the podcast and talking to us. I thought this was really a, a great conversation. I got to flex my darning skills. So that's what, <laughs> that's what accounts for me as far as I'm concerned. But yeah, I, any, any last words or thoughts you want to share with our audience? Thank you for having me today. I think most of all for the audience is uh, do some research check out the changes that are happening, really look at the labels uh, that are in your clothes, read what you see online in the product description page. If you want to know more about Renew Cell and about Circulos, you can find us uh, on LinkedIn or on Instagram. Happy to provide more information. If you want to follow some of our launches, you can check that out on our Instagram account. Um, or if you want to reach out to me, I'm on LinkedIn. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Innovation Matters is a production of Lux Research, the leading sustainable innovation research and advisory firm. You can follow this podcast on Apple Music, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want more, check out www.luxresearchinc.com slash blog for all the latest news, opinions, and articles.